This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It is now my pleasure to introduce UC San Diego Chancellor Pradeep Khosla. In addition to being our eighth chancellor, he's also a world-renowned electrical and computer engineer. He's an elected member of several distinguished academies and the recipient of numerous awards for his leadership, teaching, and research. He came to us from Carnegie Mellon, where he was dean of the School of Engineering. Since Chancellor Kosla began his tenure one year ago, he's initiated an all-inclusive campus-wide strategic planning process to unite our campus community and to ensure a bright future for UC San Diego. He recognizes that being a diverse community of scholars is the key to the growth and success of UC San Diego well into the 22nd century. Please join me and welcome Chancellor Pradeep Khosla. Thank you, Linda, and uh, welcome everybody to sunny San Diego. Oh, come on. There is sun out there. Just have hope. I tell you, around noon it comes out. Uh, the water vapor has to just evaporate somehow, so we need the sun to, to make that happen for us. Um, when I was walking in, I was nervous in the sense, uh, I said, you know, this is a tough assignment. Uh, here's one of my good colleagues, Linda Katehi, who's a great champion of diversity, uh, who's uh, one of the hosts of this uh, meeting out here. And why is it that I get this tough assignment to talk about diversity and she gets to sit there? And, and then I walk in and I realize it's a doubly tough assignment because Linda got up and made a very eloquent uh, statement about what is diversity and why is it so important. So now I'm sitting here thinking, geez, what do I say now? So, you know, if I was in the mathematics business, I would just recite her proof and say QED, I'm done, you know. But uh, I guess not. So I'll tell you what. Uh, I'm so glad that you are here because I think the topic we are here to discuss, that you are here to discuss, uh, is of great significance and great importance. It's of great importance for many, many reasons, and uh, I might end up repeating some of the things that have already been said. Uh, but let's just look at, let's start with looking at the history of this country. For the last 65, 70 years, at least post-World War II, we have basically been, been a leader in the world along many, many dimensions. Certainly in the economic dimension, we have led the world, and everybody else has benefited from what we have discovered and invented out here. Uh, we've been able to do that because we have had an education system that has fully deployed our workforce, or nearly fully deployed our workforce. So for example, between World War I and II, less than 10% of our uh, population in between the ages of 18 and 25 had a BS degree. Post-World War II, it is at 30-some percent right now, about 33 percent today. Uh, and this level of education has really helped propel our economy. It has helped build an educational system which has been the envy of this world. And while this has been happening, the rest of the world has been benefiting from us. Uh, and as Linda was pointing out, the rest of the world is not sleeping. So post 
2000, uh, thanks to the dot-com boom, uh, especially India and China had made significant strides and significant benefit, got significant benefit from this country. And we, on a relative basis, have kind of fell behind, but not on an absolute basis. As in, our growth rate is lower than those countries. Our standard of living is, the gap is closing uh, more and more. Um, why do I tell you all of this? Uh, not to tell you that we need to go back to the old times. I tell you this because with this population of 320 million people, which is where we are about approximately, if we have to keep on leading, uh, and may I use the word dominating in some sense, it's not a good word to use, but let's say leading the world, uh, especially in economic development, and also in uh, spreading uh, democracy and all the other good uh, properties around the world, we cannot afford to do it if every one of us 320 million are not deployed to the fullest extent. And this 320 million, these 320 million people don't look like the 250 million back in year 1990. This is a very different look of 320 million people. So what does this country look like? Fast forward to 2050. 2050, our population would be about, I don't know, 350 at most. Uh, in 2050, about 47% uh, of the population in this country would be non-Hispanic whites. The people who were the majority in this country, the people who, were, who ruled the world in many, many ways for the last 200 years, are going to be a minority in this country. You fast forward, in that same year, you go to California, about 30% of the population would be white, and about 40-plus percent of the population would be Latino, Chicano, Hispanic, right? This is the population, and 2050 is not that far away. 2050 is about 37 years away. This is the year when we would have had two generations of kids born and ready to go to college. This is the time to make sure that our education system is an all-inclusive education system and an education system that provides opportunity for all, and I mean this in very simple words, inclusive in every possible way and opportunity for all in every possible way. Because if we don't do that, this 47% of the population, which would be white in the country, right, of which half would be women, and as Linda was pointing out, who have been excluded for a long time, so now you're left with 23% of the population about, you are not going to be able to maintain a standard of living. We are not going to be able to maintain a standard of living. So, point is, it's in everybody's interest to actually really wake up and realize how the demographics are changing, not just in California, but in this country, and really start accepting this change in a very positive way and prepare ourselves for the world that is coming and ask ourselves, what is it that we have to do to be inclusive and to create opportunity? This country has had opportunity for all. I, as Linda came from Greece, I came from India, and I'm glad I did, and I can tell you that I've been treated extremely well. I've had great opportunity. You could not imagine any other country which would have an immigrant from 30 years ago uh, be leading one of the top 10 institutions in the world. That's the greatness of this country. And that's the greatness we want to maintain. That's the greatness we want to perpetuate. So what does it take? So we can all, like Linda was saying, we all understand the importance of diversity, so it's very hard for me to start explaining to you why diversity is important. I'm going to stipulate that it's important. It's granted it's important, right? We all believe it. Let me tell you the two things uh, that I think stand in our way. 
Point number one, freedom from fear. Human beings inherently have the tendency to stick with like-minded, like-looking, like-whatever type of people. We are afraid of people who don't look like us, who don't think like us, who don't eat like us, who don't talk like us, and it goes on and on and on. If there is a program we need to create, it is to understand how do we release ourselves from this fear? How do we free ourselves from this fear so that we become inclusive, we become, we realize that we are in this boat, that if we don't start working with each other, we're going to sink, and, and we're going to sink in this sea, which is called the rest of the world, and they're going to be dominating us. So if we have to maintain our freedom, now just try to be selfish, right? If, you all want, if we all want to maintain our freedom, we all have to work together. But somehow in our mind is this fear. And honestly, I don't know how to relieve ourselves from this fear. I want the historians. I want the anthropologists. I want the social scientists. I want them to work with each other, to work with us, to tell us, like, what does it take? to be free of this fear of differences because differences are what make us powerful. So I'll give you another example. So in 1996, there was uh, some experiment by a social scientist. I apologize, I can't remember the name. So the experiment was the following. There were two groups. One group was a very diverse group of Asians, Hispanics, African-Americans, whites, just about every, you know, uh, coalition of what this population is. And they were told to brainstorm about some ideas. The other group was only a group of whites who were told to brainstorm about the same ideas. There was a third group, which was a review group, which was going to look at the ideas coming out of these two groups and figure out who had the better ideas. So when this bunch of reviewers looked at the output of the two groups, they concluded that in terms of the number of ideas and the density of ideas and so on and so forth, the two groups were very much equivalent. I mean, they produced... um, the same, uh, same number of ideas. But when they became a little bit more refined and sophisticated in their thinking, when they started to think about which ideas were more acceptable, which ideas were more implementable, which ideas were more executable, uh, they picked a group uh, whose ideas were more, execu- uh, more implementable, feasible, and believe it or not, this group was the diverse group who had ideas because of different thoughts and different thought processes and different backgrounds that were brought to bear upon the generation of these ideas, that when a third party looked at them, they said, you know what? These set of ideas from the diverse group are more implementable. This is a blind study. And there are many, many studies that go on and on uh, where people have shown that diversity adds value. In fact, and I'm trying to remember if it was Ford or GM uh, had difficulty selling cars. So they said, you know what, we're going to have a design team. Why don't we have a diverse design team and include more women than we have had in the past? And as soon as they did that, they built a car that was selling more. Because simple things like where should the cup holder be? Where should that vanity mirror be? Now, I'm not kidding you. You know, simple things that people use in making choices about buying a car were taken care of because they had a diversity of opinion which came out of a diverse set of people, right? So there is no dearth of information. There is no dearth of work that convinces, convincingly, that diversity is far better than, having a diverse population and group is far better than not. 
From my point of view, you might say, okay, so why do you care about this as a chancellor? So the reason I care is because as we go, have been going through a strategic planning process, we have concluded that we want to be a student-centered uh, institution. And part of being student-centered is something called the student experience, both inside the classroom and outside the classroom. And I believe the student experience that my son, who's 23, or my daughter, who's 12, that I would like them to have is one that is reflective of society, that causes some learning, that teaches them values uh, that they may not have had growing up in a family like mine. And I want them to be in that society. And I think a university, especially a large campus like ours with 30,000 students and 25,000 staff, 50,000 people on campus, it is in the 90th percentile of all towns in this country, should represent the microcosm, should be the microcosm that represents society. And that's why we want to be more diverse. Uh, let me talk a little bit about, uh, so I talked about freedom from fear. We need to get rid of it. There are, Linda talked about uh, hidden biases. So there is, and she said that in the context of the files, right? There's a great book. How many of you have read Blink? Okay, not good. Every one of you should have read Blink. And if you ask me why, Blink is about, uh, it's written by Malcolm Gladwell, who's one of my well, recent favorite authors. The book basically addresses the issue of choices that we human beings make in the blink of an eye, and then these choices have long-term ramifications. And in that book, he goes through working with a whole range of social scientists and anthropologists and historians, uh, uh, sociologists, with several examples. But the bottom line is time after time after time, it has been shown that many of the choices that we make in the blink of an eye basically reflect our hidden biases. And one of the examples that really, uh, I don't know why it stood out to me, was uh, the example of uh, a car salesman, who was a super successful car salesman in one of the uh, companies. And when he was asked, what makes you so success as successful? He was successful as in two sigma more successful. So it's not like he was slightly more successful than the next person. He was like two sigma away than the next uh, successful person. And his answer was, and that really stuck in my head. And he said, I don't prejudge and I don't judge. And he gave an example. He said, here's an example of what I mean by this. He said, one fine morning, he was, and this was in middle America somewhere, was sitting in his uh, sales room, and he says, this shabby-looking guy walks in in his farm overalls, you know, dirty nails, you know, scrubby face, uh, and he's walking in and looking at some of the most expensive cars, and none of the salesmen got up to go and greet him. How many of you have had this feeling? If you're a woman, I'm sure you've had this uh, experience. Now, I'm not kidding you. I've had this experience, right? And he said, I did not prejudge him. I did not judge him. He was a customer in my showroom, so I got up there, and I started showing cars to him. Turns out this uh, 
guy in farm overalls, dirty-looking guy, was one of the richest farmers in that area. And he says, year after year, he would replace the top model of the car. And he says, that was like forever. He would come to that and he would deal with nobody. He would only deal with this person. And I think there is a lesson in this. There is a lesson in this because we as faculty members tend to judge and prejudge more often than we should. Partly because that's our job, to judge these students and see how good they are, but then we kind of scale it into situations that it doesn't make sense, and we forget that it doesn't make sense to scale it there. And that is something, and Linda gave examples of uh, tenure and promotion cases. I can tell you, uh, when I was dean, I was the dean at this point, uh, it's an, of a department, of a, uh, sorry, the department head of a department, who in a hundred year history, had no more than one woman ever in their fac- on their faculty, who in their 100-year history had never tenured anybody, a woman. So when I become uh, department chair, my marching orders are, Pradeep, you're going to fix this. So when I was done five years later, we had six women on the faculty, two African-Americans, and when I became dean, every one of them went through tenure successfully, right? And while I was trying to make these hires, I always had to argue the point that diversity and quality are not inversely proportional to each other. They are not a trade-off on an XY-axis graph. They are independent variables. I can have diversity, I can have high quality independently in the same individual. And the people I had to explain explain this to were colleagues of mine, were scholars of the best possible order. They were members of the academy. They were fellows of various societies. They were very accomplished people, no different than all of us. And that is the type of conversation we need to stop having. This is, and the way to stop having that conversation, I believe, is finding a way for us to free ourselves from this fear of somebody different being in our midst and trying not to scale our judgmental view of life to situations where it does not quite belong. And honestly, I wish I could fix it. I hope I'll fix it. I think at UC San Diego, one of the innovations that I came to learn about was this diversity statement, where you have to, when you apply here for a job, you have to write a diversity statement. It doesn't mean you're an underrepresented minority or that you will help one. You just have to argue as to what have you done for diversity, broadly defined. And then there's a faculty committee that looks at this statement to evaluate that. There are people out here who would argue that that statement is constraining. There are people out here who would argue that that statement is empowering. And I think if I look at the value of that statement, we've made a difference. So from 2007 to 2010, we hired about 110 ladder-ranked faculty. Only 10 were underrepresented minorities. From 2010 to 2013, we hired about 120 or 130 in that range, a ladder rank faculty. This time around, more than 30 were underrepresented minorities. What was the difference between these two, three years? The diversity statement, right? And that was an important innovation. And I know that we have an uphill conversation both on this campus uh, on this campus in terms of convincing everybody. I never expect to convince everybody. 
but I do believe that the majority of my colleagues should be convinced. And this is why I'm so gladful that I see the leadership, uh, our administrative leadership out here, several deans out here, our executive vice chancellor, I want to recognize him, Suresh Subraman, he's right here sitting. Suresh, you got to raise your hand. Um, and look, I can go on and on, but I think I kind of made my point. I just want to summarize by saying the way I think about diversity is the way you think about diversity, but on a meta level, I think this notion of blink that I talked about is important, and we need to understand how do we scale that and make sure that everybody has that as part of their thought process. In fact, when it comes to issues like diversity, we should not be making judgments in a blink. We should be unblinking ourselves and making judgments with a very thoughtful, uh, in, a, in a thoughtful time frame. And this freedom from fear. That is another thing, and I have no idea how that's going to be taken care of. But I see some of my colleagues from uh, social sciences and uh, humanities out here. I think they will teach me and they will educate me how to do this. With that said, let me just say thank you very much. I really appreciate you being here. Trust me, the sun will come out, <laughs> right? And I'm happy to answer a few questions. Thank you. I'm Harry Green from UC Riverside. I am the chair of the University Committee on Academic Personnel, and I was the chair of that committee last year. And between my committee and the Committee on Academic... How, how was it? <laughs> Affirmative Action. Affirmative Action and Diversity. Uh, we worked very, very hard on the specific wording of APM 2101D that I think everybody in this room would know what that is. Um, and... I'd like to recount some of the difficulty I had in the CAP meeting. Um, everyone in that committee is a very highly ranked academic. Uh, they are the ones who make the penultimate decision on everyone's merit and promotion on their campuses. Uh, and they are all very serious people. They all do exactly as you say. They uh, endorse the idea of diversity. But I couldn't get them past this idea that they are objective and they are making decisions without any bias. And I, and I think that can be spread through most of the faculty. And I'm going to work very hard on the new UCAP this year. Only one other returning, two other returning members, I believe, one of whom is supposed to be in this room. Uh, she is not part of the problem. Uh, it is a serious, serious problem, I think, in getting to our faculty to this blink concept, that we all need to admit we do have these biases, and until we do, we're not going to get anywhere. Right. And thank you. And I'm so glad that the chair of UCAP would say this because uh, I think uh, coming from you, it's really powerful. And, and the reason I brought up these concepts here is I think instead of uh, advocating diversity and its virtues to ourselves, uh, it's like we are, we are the converted. We don't need to be converted anymore. We need to understand the higher level, the meta level issue as to how is this going to be uh, propagated through a broader community and is through 
this notion of blink becoming unblink. And I don't, and I'm trying to figure out. And I think if you were to spend some time thinking about how do we educate, how do we make people more aware, and how do we keep on doing this uh, more and more often, it would be really a great conclusion, to a great outcome for this meeting, or at least one of the great outcomes, because it's going to have a much longer uh, much uh, impact for a much longer time frame. The time constant of this impact is going to be very long, and I think that's the type of impact we want. We don't want to get to a point, 2050, when we are a pluralistic society, as in a majority of minorities, and these minorities have not graduated, enough of them have, proportionally enough, have graduated, gone through high school, through college, PhDs, and right now I can tell you, if I look at the demographics, that's where we are headed. Uh, and that's not going to be a good demographic to deal with, and the country is not going to be strong. Yeah. I'm Mary Lou de Leon Science from the University of California, Davis. Um, I'm the director of the Center for the Advancement of Multi Multicultural Perspectives on Science. And I have partially question and comments. Two things in terms of incentives for diversity. Um, what, what, how, how is UC um, San Diego handling merit review in terms of recognizing champions for diversity as part of the merit review? And what incentives are there to overcome some of this blinking? So, tell you what, I'm going to ask Suresh to give you some detail as to what are we doing in terms of... <laughs> no, because <laughs> unlike most of you, most of the cases stop there. Because <laughs> oh, well, uh, thank you. In the, you know, when we recruit a faculty, we are using the diversity state. And I want to make a point about this, that we in academia are so caught up on pedigree you know, the, the, if you're from Harvard, MIT, Berkeley, et cetera, you know, the, we are looking for people uh, from these uh, premier institutions. But if you look deeper down than that in, in the file, there are some real gems of faculty. You know, you, if I think about that statement, you know, Linda wouldn't be here, Pradeep wouldn't be here, I wouldn't be here. We all got a break from institutions. You know, when we joined grad school, were unknown to the uh, 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 American university. So, you know, it, it is that concept partly. But with respect to answering this particular question, we have uh, the standard uh, analysis of research service and uh, uh, teaching, but we've added a, uh, not a, s a separate part, but we've added a separate uh, 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 statement about uh, diversity contribution, which is separated uh, in the uh, academic uh, file so that that can be highlighted as a separate thing. It's not required of every file. If there is material there, we want to see it highlighted separately. And our cap has indeed worked with me to reward those exceptional contributions to diversity with bonuses and so on. But it's not, we're not forcing everyone to do it. It is not a fourth leg of a, not for a stool going to a chair. Uh, but, you know, it, it raises the awareness so that when... Uh, the candidate puts the file together, and the chair and the dean and the chain of command looks at it. There's, you know, you're drawing attention to this fact that someone has made exceptional contributions. And when people start to recognize that there is indeed a reward system, and we've created a conversation, in some cases uncomfortable, in some cases very rewarding, I like the buzz that's going on on this campus about diversity and, and, and how it makes a difference. I'm happy to listen to disagreements and try to work this out. But without that conversation, we're not going to get anywhere in this process. So that, that's right. where we are. Thanks, Ray. So let me add uh, 
to Suresh's notion of pedigree uh, at the risk of embarrassing one of my colleagues, uh, but I really don't want to embarrass you. I want to point out Olivia sitting right there, a young superstar who uh, works in the nanotech area, is uh, doing computational materials. She came to us from Alfred University. Now, typically, you would not think of Alfred. She was faculty member there for, what, six years? Right? Typically, you would not think of Alfred or somebody who spent uh, six years at Alfred as being a hotshot research superstar because Alfred is not a, a research university. But when all of them, if you look at, and I call her a young superstar because I know she is, because uh, I have seen her record, and I think she is just but one example of many such faculty. I had dinner with the other day, which Olivia put together for me, uh, about half a dozen of them, and every one of them, I was amazed by how this notion of this diversity statement has made such a big difference. Uh, let me just say one more thing. So you talked about what are the incentives, right? You know, in academia, it's really interesting, and I apologize for saying what I'm going to say now, that everything we do, uh, we want to be incentivized. How about our very own survival, the survival of our kids and grandkids? If you just look at the numbers I recited for you, this is not going to be a great country if we don't deal with it right now. Now, so if we talk about the debt is going to kill our grandkids, let me tell you, diversity is going to kill us more and faster. Because we can always print money. We cannot print diversity. Do you see what I'm saying? So I think at some point we have to change the narrative. We have to change the argument from what do I get? I mean, do I get an extra step prep jump or do I get extra two, two, two grand to a broader issue? As academics, we are here to make broader impact on society. I think we're out of time, thank and you. I understand you have other things you have to do. Um, thank you very much, and thank you for answering some very uh, important questions. Thanks. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.